You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Randall Gilmore here. You may have noticed that I took a break last week from publishing an episode of the Seed of the Woman podcast. And one of the reasons why is because of some health issues that I have to take care of. But also, I am working on putting together just the remaining parts of this podcast that will go into the numbers in the Bible, the solar calendar and the zodiac, Noah's story, and all that is involved with Babel and Babylon through the end of the age. And there are a lot of moving parts to the story that remain. And so I want to be accurate. I want to be very careful about what I'm sharing with you. And so I'm taking just some extra time to study and to prepare for those episodes. Meanwhile, as kind of an interlude on a topic that's not unrelated, I'm going to share something I'm going to be preaching about this coming Sunday on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be preaching from Acts 17 to do this. And so, if you have a Bible handy, I would invite you to turn to Acts 17 and follow along as I read verses 22 through 34. Here's verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So these verses we just read are Paul's proclaiming the gospel to people in Athens. Athens is one of three cities in Acts 17 where Paul travels to spread the good news both to Jews and non-Jews. And I'm fascinated by the messaging that Paul used here, because at the end of what he shares, He asserts that Jesus is going to return someday to judge the world in righteousness. 
And it's such a blessing to see that, because some don't like to think very much at all about Jesus' second coming, much less included in a gospel presentation. I remember not too long ago, I was preaching in a church in northern Indiana about the Gospel Story Arc Project and sharing the messaging that we'd lead with to tell others about Christ. And of course, part of that message is the fact that Jesus is going to return someday. But after the sermon, a lady came up to me and said, you know, I really don't like to hear you talk about the return of Jesus because my husband and I just retired and we have all sorts of plans and dreams about what our lives are going to be like here in retirement. I mean, I could hardly believe what I was hearing. And what a contrast to Paul's messaging in Acts 17 when he shares that Jesus is going to return in righteousness to judge everyone. Now, what's interesting to me is that Paul does not limit his messaging of the gospel to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, as important as that is. But if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you already know that at the Gospel Story Art Project, our focus is helping everyone to see the value of expanding gospel messaging beyond the fact of Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, Again, as important as that is. I'm so grateful that Jesus suffered and died for me, and for you too. So I would never intentionally do anything to diminish the value of proclaiming his death and shed blood for us. But what makes Jesus' suffering and death so significant and so valuable is the larger story that tells who he is. And so whenever I talk about the Gospel Story Arc Project, as you know, I always say that anytime we share the gospel, we share information from four categories. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, who we are, and a call to believe. But unfortunately, the larger story of who Jesus is has all but dropped out of most gospel presentations these days, along with the larger story of what Jesus did and will do someday when he returns. So again, it's fascinating to me to examine Paul's messaging and to see him expanding that messaging to tell more of Jesus' story, including the fact that Jesus will return someday, first to judge the world in righteousness, And then, as we know, to restore all things. And this doesn't mean that Paul didn't talk about Jesus' death, even though that's not mentioned in Acts 17 in the part about his sermon at Athens. Of course he talked about Jesus' death. But early on, when he talked about Jesus dying, he had to prove from the scriptures and the larger story about Jesus that Jesus dying didn't disqualify him from his being the Christ. Back in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was proclaiming to be the Christ, and meanwhile telling people also that he was about to die, they immediately objected. John 12, 34 says that they said, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? So, people had to be convinced that just because Jesus died didn't disqualify him from being the Christ. So every time Paul shared the gospel, he used the larger story of the Christ found throughout the scriptures to prove that's who Jesus is. Take Thessalonica, for example, which Luke writes about near the beginning of Acts 17. In verses 2 and 3, Luke says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So, Paul was in the habit of leading his gospel presentations with who Jesus is and using Jesus' resurrection to prove it. But now, in Athens, 
He uses Jesus' resurrection to prove that Jesus is coming again, to judge the world in righteousness. Now, this may seem a little strange, but I'm going to stop here when I'm preaching this message to give the application. And I'm going to tell people not to get their hopes up because I'm not saying that I'm almost done with this sermon. I'm really old school, so I think a 10-minute sermon is something like an oxymoron. But seriously, I am going to stop here and give the application. And it has two parts. First, I want to call everyone to restore to the front of our minds and to the top of our hearts that part of the gospel that says Jesus is coming again. You know, the Bible is so clear. Jesus will return someday to judge the world in righteousness and to restore all things. And so it's extremely important for us to restore this promise to the front of our minds. And as I say, the front of our minds and the top of our hearts. And then the second part of this application is to call us to actively waiting for Jesus' return. Not just ordinary waiting, but actively waiting. As I say, Jesus is coming again. It's an undeniable element of the larger story told in Scripture about him. He's going to return someday to finally crush the head of the serpent, who is Satan and to destroy the serpent's seed. Look, Jesus came into the world the first time as a helpless baby, born of a virgin. And he grew up. He lived a perfect life. And he performed miracles to authenticate his identity. But he was rejected and murdered on the cross, and so they buried him, and he was three days in the tomb. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and soon after, he ascended to the right hand of God, and God exalted him as Lord. And now, from that lofty position, Jesus is interceding for us. But there's more. Because at the right hand of God, Jesus is now like a mighty general, orchestrating events in this world that will lead ultimately to his return and to the defeat of all of his enemies. And by our actively waiting for Jesus to return, we're part of what he's doing in the world now to propel the world forward to the end that he's promised. So the application is to restore Jesus' return to its rightful place in the gospel and to its rightful place in our hearts and minds and in our worship and in our daily lives as the church. And by the way, if we had started reading earlier in Acts 17, we would have noticed what motivated Paul to share in Athens what he did about Jesus' return. Acts 17, 16 tells us, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You know, the kind of idols mentioned here were not just so-called idols of the heart. They were real objects made of precious metals and stone, representing various gods and their stories. I've seen these kinds of idols everywhere you turn throughout Asia. You know, for seven years, I oversaw ministry in several Asian countries, and that's where the Gospel Story Arc project was born. My wife and I even lived in Asia for several months at a time. So we know what real idols are and the connections that people make on a heart level to their spiritual power, that is, to the spiritual power tied to those images, and to their stories. Now, they're the kind of idols and myths that were everywhere in every city that Paul went to. And I think it's important for me to say they were in every city because the rest of Acts 17 doesn't specifically mention idols in Thessalonica or Berea, the other city that is part of Acts 17 and Luke's report. 
But we know that those cities were full of idols too. So think back for a moment to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul commends the Thessalonians for their response to the gospel. There in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there you have it, the same connection to idols among the Thessalonians as there was in Athens. And did you notice the same tie to actively waiting for Jesus to return? So once again, the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians were actively waiting for Jesus to return. Now, these verses reveal that we can break down actively waiting for Jesus' return into two overarching priorities. First, serving the living and true God. And then secondly, waiting for his Son from heaven. So, serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. And both are critical. And by the way, they're flip sides of the same coin. Both refer to our serving with Jesus' return playing an active role in all that we do. And not as just something we tuck away somewhere in the back of our minds, but in the front of our minds. And as I say, at the top of our hearts, where it influences our relationships and ministries. And where it becomes a grid that we use to process what's happening in the world. Even now, as Jesus is orchestrating events like this mighty general that he is, the events leading to his return and the ultimate defeat of his enemies and the restoration of all things. Without both priorities, serving and waiting, our lives and ministries quickly get out of balance. And that goes for both waiting without serving or serving without waiting. So waiting on Jesus' return without serving is is not what we're after. Waiting without serving means missing out on experiences of Christ's love flowing through us to others as we serve. And these kinds of experiences are so critical to our sanctification and to our transformation into the persons that God wants us to be. But serving without waiting, serving without allowing the promise of Jesus' return to occupy our hearts and minds, And to influence us at every turn, well, that also carries significant risk. For one, it can blind us from seeing our place in the world or or from understanding the times in which we live. And it can also blind us from seeing all that Jesus is doing in the world now as this mighty general at the right hand of the Father, orchestrating events leading to his return. And that takes us back to what happened in Athens. Because after Paul finished preaching, Acts 17.32-34 tells us several people came to faith in Jesus. In other words, this mighty general at the right hand of the Father orchestrated the defeat of the enemy of unbelief in the hearts of a number of people. And listen, if you're a believer in Christ today, and you probably are listening to this podcast, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ It's because Jesus has defeated the unbelief that once ruled in your heart. 
And as believers, you and I are trophies of Jesus' power to orchestrate the defeat of unbelief in this world. And by the way, if you've yet to become a believer in Jesus, and you happen to be listening to this podcast, I want to invite you to discover who Jesus is and discover the larger story the Bible tells of him. He is the risen Savior, and he's worthy of your faith and love. Back in Athens, it's true that some mocked, and some only said we want to hear more. But some did believe. And there were similar responses to Paul's message in Thessalonica and Berea, but here's the thing. Only in Athens are two of the people who believed identified by name. And I think you'll find this interesting because their names point to the final victory that Jesus is going to have someday over all of his enemies. So verse 34 of Acts 17 headlines the names Dionysius and Damaris. I love it when Bible stories include names because the meaning of those names often contribute to the story in some way. And that's the case for Dionysius and Damaris. So I'll start by telling you the meaning of Damaris. And I need to apologize ahead of time if there's anyone listening with this name, because I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. And I probably should say the cow out of the bag, because Damaris literally means heifer, a female cow. And that may seem funny to us, but it's significant in this story. And I'll come back to it after I tell you more about Dionysius. Dionysius is the name of a well-known pagan god, a god believed to be the son of Zeus, and who was, quote, a golden-haired son, that's S-U-N, a golden-haired son whose beams caused the earth to yield her increase. Dionysius is just about everywhere you turn in paganism. You find him associated with all sorts of myths and festivals, and virtually all of them featuring immorality and drunkenness, and cows that were used for sacrifice, and cows used as objects of worship. And that's why it's not surprising to see the name Damaris mentioned here in connection to the name Dionysius. So Dionysius was the son of Zeus, and Damaris was his worshiper. But more important, Dionysius was believed to be the serpent man. Now, there were lots of of pagan gods who were known as the seed of the serpent. But as I say, Dionysius played a prominent role in paganism. And he was known as the serpent man and as the seed of the serpent, the satanic rival to the seed of the woman, whom we know as Jesus. So back in Genesis 3, as we've been saying throughout this podcast, God said there would be constant enmity between these two, the constant enmity between the woman and her seed and the serpent and its seed. And that in the end, the serpent and its seed would be totally defeated. The seed of the woman will destroy him. And Satan knows all of this as well as anyone. So throughout history, one of his strategies has been to convince people that the conflict is over and that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman have been reconciled. And by the way, that's a proposition that's likely to be repeated at the end of the age, just before Jesus returns. And that's what we've been talking about throughout the podcast, and especially in Revelation chapter 13 with the beast out of the earth and out of the sea. But for now, we're back in Athens. And here are two people, Dionysius and Damaris, with names invoking a distinctly antichrist worldview, invoking a counterstory to the story of the seed of the woman, a counterstory focused on the outrageous proposition that the seed of the serpent has replaced the seed of the woman. And what happens? 
Well, both Dionysius and Damaris hear the gospel. And the message not only of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, but also his return in total victory over the serpent and its seed. And both became believers. In spite of their names suggesting a different ending, both become believers in Jesus, who is the Christ. And that signals that Jesus is indeed very active in the world now and very aware of the strategies of Satan and his counterstory and his plan for the world. But nevertheless, at work in the world now, like a mighty general at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is orchestrating Satan's defeat and the defeat of his seed. And this report of their coming to faith in Jesus invites us today to restore Jesus' return to its place in the gospel and in the church and to join the Thessalonians in actively waiting for Jesus to return so that we too recognize what Jesus is doing in the world today to fulfill his promise to finish what he started and ultimately to defeat all of his enemies, including the enemy of unbelief, and then to restore all things. So that's it for this interlude in the story of the seed of the woman and the counter story of the seed of the serpent. I look forward to returning in just a couple of weeks with more biblical background on the mystery of 666. And so, more next time on Seed of the Woman. <laughs>